What U.S. coin was first minted because a mining tycoon had two friends in Congress? Why were British sailors called limeys? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off Ramp with Bob and me, Marsha <laughs> Smith. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Welcome to the off-ramp, oh my goodness, where <laughs> a chance to slow down, steer somewhat clear of crazy, somewhat, yeah. and take a side road to sanity with some fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Okay, Marcia, what U.S. coin was first minted because a mining tycoon had two friends in Congress? Gosh, yeah, got me uh, a mining tycoon. I'm trying to think of... What was it? How, how did you phrase that question? What U.S. coin was first, first minted because a mining right. tycoon had I, two friends in Congress? I can't think of what, what coin related to mining. I don't know. The buffalo nickel. It's the nickel. It is the nickel. Is it? Yes, because of Pennsylvania mining tycoon John Wharton. He was looking for a market for his product, nickel. And oh. uh, he, he had two friends. Oh, the actual. Yeah, okay. the actual. Uh, mineral. Mineral. Nickel. And he had two friends in high places, Congressman Thaddeus Stevens and William D. Kelly. And they pushed through legislation authorizing the U.S. Mint to manufacture five-cent pieces made out of the metal. The first one was issued in 1866. Oddly enough, they were never officially called nickels. They were called five-cent pieces. But, what was uh, the year they came out? They first came out in 1866. Okay. Been made ever since. Mm-hmm. And guess what? what? That's not a good name for them. Nickel isn't uh, a good name for them. Why? Because they've never been fully made out of nickel. There's only 25% of the coin that's nickel. The rest is copper. It's an alloy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why did American sailors call British sailors limeys, Bob? They were known across the seas for eating lemons and limes. That's right. And why? Because of uh, the disease. Is it scurvy? It is. Okay, tell me. It is. Scurvy was the scourge for thousands of years for, for sailors. sailors. Yeah. It's a dietary deficiency, scurvy, caused by the lack of vitamin C. That's it. Okay. And the Royal Navy cracked the code and solved the mystery in the 18th century thanks to a surgeon, James Lind, who got the British Navy to give its sailors lime or lemon juice when they were out to sea. And by golly, that saved their lives. The Americans finally came on board, so to speak with the cure in the 1800s. But they made fun of them and called them limeys because you're eating limes yeah, all the time. But, and that uh, was the smart thing to do, though. That's right. They weren't dying and the Americans were. So <laughs> so who was stupid there? That's right. Who changed their mind? <laughs> all right, Marcia. What digital voice assistant was named after a famous ancient library? Um, a current digital voice assistant. We have multiple yeah, yeah, ones out yeah, there. Yeah, I'm trying to think of... Uh, we have Siri, we have Alexa, we yeah, have others. That's the only two I knew. Well, well it's one of those. Does is, that help? Oh, Alexa. <laughs> yes. Alexa was named after the ancient library of Alexandria in Egypt. 
That's oh, yeah? Where, that's where the name came oh, from. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, according to the Bradstone book Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the invention of a global empire, Amazon considered a number of names. Another one was Friday. Friday was Robinson Crusoe's right-hand assistant. Another was Samantha the Bewitched TV series Witch. Uh-huh. Another choice was Jacqueline. That was Jeff Bezos' mother's name. Oh, really? Oh, okay. But ultimately, the team decided on Alexa. I like that. After the library in Alexandria, Egypt, which was a center of knowledge and learning. Okay. Now, Alexa was actually invented in Poland, though. Her name was Ivona there. Okay. <laughs> it was inspired by the 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Sorry, Dave, I can't yeah, turn off Hal. the computer. Yeah, inspired by Hal. <laughs> Okay, here we go. I bet you get this one right too, Bob. Okay. What did Netflix just stop doing? They just stopped. Um, they just stopped issuing DVDs. That's right. Yes. That's right. You know what the last Blu-ray disc they mailed out? No, no, were, no. What was it? I uh, want to take a guess. Uh, was it a movie? Yeah. Was it uh, maybe like the Tom Cruise film? Oh, that would be a good guess. But this movie goes back to 1969. Oh, really? Yeah. The last one they mailed out was True Grit. Uh, oh, no kidding. <laughs> the John Wayne version. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And you know what the first one they mailed out was? No. 25 years ago? Beetlejuice. So Beetlejuice to mm -hmm. True Grit. Yeah. And you know, after they mailed everybody their last orders, they let everybody keep their movies. Oh, really? So yeah. they didn't have to return them. Yeah. That was the deal. You had to return those, those yeah. discs. Yeah. Remember there was a time where streaming hadn't caught on quite as much, and they said, well, that's it. We're not going to do this anymore. And boy, was there an uproar among people who said, we get our DVDs from you. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. And yeah. they went back and did it. Yeah. They went back and kept them going. I, I forgot the number, but there were a lot of discs still being mailed out every day. That's a smart thing to keep going until it finally peters out, you yeah. know, because otherwise somebody else could have picked that up and yeah. taken it over. So, yeah. All right. I want to go one back to uh, Alexa. Alexa, this is interesting. You know, we think of Alexa as just in your TV or on your Amazon device. Yeah. But it's used in all kinds of things right now. It's used in Garmin GPS devices. It's used in smart home devices made by GELG, First Alert, Kohler, and Nest. And it's used for calming sounds by Sesame Street, too. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and Fitbit users. And then Alexa works with Domino's Pizza, Grubhub, and Pizza Hut. So all these things, including the digital voice assistants in Ford, BMW, Toyota, and Lexus, and Volkswagen cars, are actually Alexa with many different voices and many different languages. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's a, like a hidden business of Amazon. Huh. Amazing. Uh, they got a few businesses. They do have a few, yes. Okay, Bob. Where will you find a beach in the world that glows in the dark. Glows in the dark. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I always heard the there was a beach in Hawaii that was green, I thought it was, or something like that. Or there was a beach that had, um, it was colored glass is what it was. Yeah. But glows in the dark, I don't know the answer yeah. to that. It's in the Maldives. If you were wowed by, remember those glow-in-the-dark stars on ceilings oh, in yes. the bedroom right. of our kids? Right. All right. Just book a trip to the Maldives. It's there. You can see on one of their 1,000 islands in the Indian Ocean, Mahadu Island, one beach. It glows in the dark by a completely natural phenomenon thanks to crustaceans known as seed shrimp. Seed shrimp? Seed. Seed shrimp. Seed shrimp, huh. yes. Thanks to an effect, these millimeter-long creatures emit a blue light for as long as a minute or more in the dark. That's what makes the beach glow? Yep. 
Huh. Scientists aren't sure why they do, but some believe it happens when a mass mortality event occurs. Oh, dear. Sounds very sad, mass doesn't it? Mass mortality never sounds mass good. Mass mortality event. Okay. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Say, what feature of a U.S. national park was once used as a laundromat? And here's my clue to you. you you've been there. Oh, okay. What feature of a U.S. national park was once used as a laundromat? Well, Yellowstone. Was it the sulfur pits? Those uh, those bubbling Yes, it's the pits? Upper Geyser Basin, where Old Faithful can be found. Yeah. And there's scalding geothermal waters. The people that were early visitors put those things to practical use in their minds. <laughs> so they not only boiled eggs in the hot geothermal waters, they also washed their clothes in them. God, they, well, how did they not burn their hands well, off? Well, I'm sure they dunked them in and pulled them out, but okay. they turned early Yellowstone into a makeshift laundromat. That come, <laughs> isn't that funny? That comes from Britannica.com. That's oh. how they described it. I thought that was a good way to describe that's, it. That's uh, that's an amusing visual, isn't it? Imagery in your head? Oh, these Imagine people. the park rangers yeah. there like, Oh, no, no, hey, no, Ma, no, we're not you, doing that. Let's clean our socks. Get away so. from the buffalo. Don't wash <laughs> your clothes over there. All right, Bob. The largest pipe organ in the world is in Broadwalk Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Hmm. How many pipes approximately do you think it has? Jeez. 600 pipes. No. How many? 33 Oh my God! Really? <laughs> Can you believe that it? That sounds like that would that must be monstrous in yeah, sound it when is. it goes I, off. You should see. Look at the picture. Okay. The, the Midmore Losh pipe organ weighs over 150 tons, with eight orga chambers and 32 footstops. Wow! It also tops the world record for the loudest organ stop with an eardrum shattering max of 130 decibels, six times louder than a train whistle. Oh, and, <laughs> I can't imagine that. So if we go, honey, you can take a guided tour and climb in and out of the chambers of the pipe organ. Oh, you'd love me to do that. Then you'd just hit that cord and <laughs> Bob's eardrums would vibrate and explode. They built it, uh, it took three years to build between 1929 and 1932. Well, that's a feat of engineering. 33,000 pipes. Did you know at one point before clocks came out, before clocks and watches were made, organs were considered the most complex devices, you know, inventions Uh made by man. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, pretty interesting. Makes sense, I guess. Okay, Marcia, I have a uh, question here about a U.S. landmark, okay? Here's Uh a bit of trivia. Caught my eye recently. It was in an email from Britannica.com. The question is, what American landmark is an official optical illusion? Oh, really? A U.S. landmark that's an optical illusion. Oh, well, you got me. I have no idea. Another clue is it seems to be taller than it is wide. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think I'm taller than I am wide, but then I see the mirror. It's like, no, no, Bob, you are wider than you are tall. Okay. It is the St. Louis Gateway Arch. Oh, really? Yeah, it seems to be, when you look at it, it appears to be taller than it is wide. Yeah, I've been there. it's exactly 630 feet in each direction. Oh, no kidding. You'd have to be elevated in order to see it the way it actually truly looks. You went there too, didn't you? Oh, yeah, been there before. To most people, it appears wider than taller, but as Architectural Digest notes, the reason that is because people don't usually see it head on. Head on, you'd have to be 315 feet off the ground. (gasps) 
I'll and be it's there. only 600 feet tall. Yeah. So, yeah, as a result, most people see that structure almost looks taller than it does wide. All right. Aside from being an optical illusion, what other distinction does it have? The I don't know. I, in in terms of being tall. Oh, is it the tallest thing in the area? It is in that area. Yeah. But it's the tallest national monument. It's taller than the Washington Monument. Uh, is it? Is it really? Yeah, and it's taller than the Statue of Liberty too. Huh. Now this was built in 1967 when it finally came yeah. out. What president approved the concept for it? Not the Kennedy. not the design. Kennedy. Kennedy. No. Yeah. No. Back farther. Yes. Uh, before him. Uh, what's Eisenhower. His Yes, Eisenhower. <laughs> no, no, not Eisenhower. Truman, Truman. No, no, not Truman. I don't know. Franklin right. Delano Roosevelt. Really? Yeah, the monument began all the way back in 1935 when FDR designated the property along the riverfront in St. Louis to be developed as the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, and it took a long time. There was a design contest in 1947. We'll talk about that coming up. Uh, <laughs> okay. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, my ears. I thought that was like the pipe organ. This is Bob Smith with Marcia Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp, and this is a show we do for the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and their internet radio station. We're on the air every Monday night at 7, and then after that, our show goes out all over the world. Well, I, I took that away from you, Marcia. Our, <laughs> our show goes out on podcast platforms all over the world. There we go. Okay. <laughs> okay, Bob. Born in 1936, Jorge Mario Bergoglio what? Was, a, was a nightclub bouncer in his younger years. Okay. He also had jobs sweeping floors in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Buenos Aires, Argentina. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What became of this young man? All right. What's his name again? Jorge Mario Bergoglio. He became a movie star. No. Oh, okay. He became a uh, uh, he became a physics professor. No, I don't know what he what he happened to him. He became and is known today as Pope Francis. What? <laughs> yeah, he, he was, was a nightclub bouncer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're kidding! No, the, I never heard that. He was the people's pope who took his role as leader of the Catholic Church in 2013 and is still that way today. Good Lord, <laughs> I had no idea. A nightclub bouncer, <laughs> but a very nice one, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't bounce you too far. <laughs> Just a gentle little... I'm sorry you don't have the blessings to come here. <laughs> How would you turn down people if you're a nightclub bouncer who's going to become a pope? I don't... Yeah, he was called the people's pope for a reason. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, during World War II, Marcia, what U.S. state did America try to build a canal across? The United States government tried to build a canal across a state. Uh, in the contiguous states? Yes, and it was meant to help the transportation of a certain mineral. Oh, okay, like iron ore or something like that. Of a certain substance. A certain substance. Was it like maybe salt from the ocean? And no. they tried to get, okay, give me a location. Okay, it was in Florida. <laughs> That's the answer, though, right? Yeah, I was looking for south, north, Jeez. or east. All right, it was yeah. Florida. I'll tell you. Okay. Here we go. The project began in World War II, uh -huh. and it went on and on. It was finally scuttled 30 years later in the 1970s. But in 1942, Congress, by a single vote, authorized the construction of a canal across the width of central Florida. 
The idea was to find a way for Texas petroleum to be shipped by barge from the Gulf of Mexico to the East Coast with minimal exposure to German submarines. Oh, okay. That's the reason they okay. wanted to do it. All right. It was kind of a stop and start thing with politically connected real estate interests arguing to keep it going, and yeah. it did keep going till 30 years later in 1971. The Cross Florida Barge Canal was only one third complete when President Richard Nixon halted the work for environmental reasons. Oh, probably a good thing. Well, here's a, here's a question in your favorite wheelhouse, graveyards. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Where or what is the oldest maintained graveyard in the United States? I think that is in Boston, Massachusetts. Ah. It's either there or it's in, maybe it's in St. Augustine, because that's a, the oldest city. That's like 1564 uh-huh. or something uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. I'll go with that. I'll go with St. Augustine. Oh, very good. No. It, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, very good? No. It's in Duxbury, Massachusetts. So it is in Massachusetts. Right. Okay. It is called the Miles Standish Burial Ground. Oh, my. I think that's where, uh, I think that might be where my ancestor, George Soule of the Pilgrims. Really? Is that's what I was going to ask you. It dates back to 1638. Standish, the famous military leader of the Plymouth Colony, is buried there along with other Mayflower pilgrims. And I was going to ask you if I think you're... It, I think that's where he is. I think really? that's where George is. Well, if is. we ever go out that way, let's take a look. Oh, I'm glad you said that. I I was always planning on pulling that on you. It's like, I need to go to this cemetery, Marsh. Yeah, and you well, were going to go, oh, uh, not again. Well, if there's a wine bar close by, oh, you, okay. you can drop me off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Say, Marsha, back to memorials, okay? Okay. What national monument did a father and son submit competing designs for? One of our famous national monuments. Was it presidents in the mountaintop? Uh, Mount Rushmore? Yeah. There was a father and son completed that, yeah, right? right? This is a father and son who competed for the design for the monument. Okay, I don't know. It's the same one we talked about earlier, the St. Louis Gateway Arch. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, there was a contest held in 1947, and uh, there was confusion over who won because among the 170 submissions was a design from acclaimed Finnish-American Ariel Sarian featuring a tall stone gate. His son, Arrow also entered, and several months later, a telegram arrived at the Syrian offices to inform the younger Syrian, Arrow, that he made the shortlist. However, it was addressed to Ariel, his father, by mistake. So oh, geez. the father and son both celebrated with champagne. Oh, that's good, Dad, and everything. Then when the administrative error came back to them saying, I'm sorry, it's not the father, it's the son. Oh, dear. They went ahead and opened a second bottle of champagne yeah. and toasted Ariel instead. Well, that's in the end, that was should do. His design is the one that resonated the which most with the, the judges. Big, which was the big arch? Yeah, the steel arch. Yeah. That's I, only two years after World War II that design was approved. So that was a pretty but, neat new design, you know? Yeah. They didn't start building it till late 60s, yeah, right? Yeah, mid-60s. And I went there in the early 70s, and uh, it didn't look like much to me then. It was all pretty crude yet on the bottom, and the dirt was there. Oh, the landscaping yeah. wasn't done yet. Yeah. yeah. But I just thought, well, what the hell is that supposed to be? <laughs> but it actually, you know, it was the gateway to the West. That's right. That's the idea. That's, that's the idea. I'm glad you finally figured it out. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, okay, here's another trivia question on that, since we're on it. (laughs) Only one U.S. president has ever been up inside the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Why? Why? Because, oh, well, they can't protect them up there. That's right. 
Yeah. If you go up and you come back down, and it's very confined space, yeah. and the Secret Service said no. that is too much of a national security risk. So only one U.S. president ever did it, and it was after he was U.S. president. Who was it? Oh, after he left office? It was. It was Ronald Reagan. No, it was Eisenhower. Okay. He took a trip up the arch. Secret Service said, okay, you can't announce this. It can't be a part of your official itinerary, and it has to be outside the regular opening hours. So they did it at night in secret. Uh-huh. He was the president who signed off on the memorial Oh, okay. before so, it was built. And he wanted to go up. He wanted to go up. All right. Bob, Ian Fleming. Yes. What did he write? James Bond books. Uh, yes, James they Bond. They were dirty when I was growing up. Did you know that? No. They had little sex scenes in there, which today are very tame, but at the time it was like, oh, oh. I'm going to get another one of those to read, you know? <laughs> Titillated you, did it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, what was his character's name in the rough draft, in the original draft of Casino Royale? It was some kind of real lame name, wasn't it? <laughs> but I can't remember what it was. I read about this once. Fleming called him James Secreton. <laughs> Secreton. <laughs> that sounds very lame, doesn't Secretin. it? Secreton. James Secreton. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not the same as Bond, James it, Bond. That's right. But Ian's brother, Peter, suggested he name 007 the protagonist after a real-life hero in the Secret Intelligence Service and call the guy Rodney Clarence Mortimer Bond. <laughs> Even worse. Uh, Rodney Bond didn't work, but he kept the original first name, James, and he went with the Bond. James Bond. Yeah, that's how it was. Instead of James Secretive or Rodney (laughs) Bond. Isn't that interesting? That's right. He he compromised on that name. It was a good, uh, obviously, iconic name. This is an interesting bit of trivia here, Marcia. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Highlander Folk Center in Tennessee. No. The Highlander Folk Center in Tennessee profited in the 1960s because it owned the royalties to one particular song. What song was it? Now, here's a hint. The Highlander Folk Center trained a lot of civil rights activists in nonviolent protest methods. So what song did they have that helped fund their organization? The only one I can think of is uh, We Shall Overcome. That's the one. Really? Okay. That song was copyrighted in Nashville by a Tennessee schoolteacher, Guy Carawan. The song was heard by Zilphia Horton, who became the director of that center. Horton taught it to Pete Seeger. They changed it around a little bit, and they added a more of a rhythmic touch to it. They worked with Carawan. He copyrighted the song, and he directed all royalties to the Highlander Folk Center. And oh, that's, that's nice. They had a lot of different songs there that they're credited with turning into civil rights marches, like This Little Light of Mine and We Shall Not Be Moved and We Shall Overcome. The song is now in the public domain. Oh, okay. Good to know. Bob, what famous author wrote novels with a crayon? With a crayon? Uh-huh. He wrote novels with a crayon? Famous, famous guy. Wasn't that the guy who wrote the uh, the road book? Uh, the Kerouac? Road... Yes, wasn't it? No. Not Kerouac? No. You didn't write with crayons. <laughs> okay, who did? I don't know. James Joyce. Oh, really? Can you imagine? Oh, my God. Can you imagine? It took him 17 years to write Finnegan's Wake with Some a crayon. Some of those dreary stories. Oh, with... God. Have you ever read an entire James Joyce no, novel? No, have you? No. Have you read a portion of a James Joyce novel? Pieces. 
They had, bits, they had uh, a lot of his work at Southern Illinois University in the oh, Rare yeah? Book Room. I oh, remember, uh, I don't know, it was donated by somebody there, and uh, they had a case, and you could look at, through it and see some of uh, was it James Joyce stuff. It, I didn't remember crayons. Yeah. No, I didn't remember why that. Why do you think he wrote with a crayon? Why did he write with a crayon? That's the question. Okay, why did he write with a crayon? Because he had such terrible eyesight, and he had to write big and bold so he could read it and see it. Jeez. Yeah, it, uh, large crayons helped him to see what he was writing. As a child, he had a severe issue with eyesight, and by the time he reached his 20s, these problems only got worse with a bout of rheumatic fever. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, so, but he... Uh, crayons, jeez. Yeah, he used to write on his belly in the bed so the light would reflect off the words so he could see him better. Oh, my, that just sounds terrible. It does, poor guy. It doesn't make me want to read his books, though. No. <laughs> No. Okay, no. I have a, a couple questions to wrap things up here on okay. that monument you referred to with the faces known as <laughs> Mount Rushmore. Okay, if you compare the Sphinx to Mount Rushmore, which is bigger? Uh, the Sphinx well, in Egypt, right? The big. Uh, yeah, uh, I haven't seen either of those, so I'll just take a guess. Okay. I'll say Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Sphinx is big, but not compared to George Washington's face. Yeah. <laughs> George Washington's face is 60 feet long. The Sphinx would fit between the end of his nose and his eyebrow. That's how big George Washington's face is. Oh, my is. gosh. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Who's the only president with a mustache on Mount Rushmore? Uh, Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt. Here's another one. You think the mole on your body is big? Yeah. How about that <laughs> facial mole on Abraham Lincoln's face? <laughs> I lied. It's um, a foot and a half wide. That's a big mole. Better have that look, that guy. <laughs> How long did Mount Rushmore take to build? Oh, jeez. 100 years? 14. 14 years? 14 years. And how uh, much rock was removed? Any idea how no. many thousands of no, tons? No, 5,000 tons of granite from the rock face of the mountain. Okay. Bob, okay. Anyway, once. Marsh, rock on. <laughs> Just rock on. Okay. Yes, honey. I, I get it. Well, speaking of jokes, what year do you think the first walked into a bar joke appeared? Oh, a guy walked into a bar? Uh, Yeah. I would think that would go way back, like Uh 1850s or 1820s or something like that. Well, you're close. 1983 B.C. Oh, my God. (laughs) Really? They found a joke from 1983 B.C.? The Sumerians are credited with the first ever walked into a bar joke. Uh Oh, and this is rollicking, right? I guess you had to be there because it goes, a dog walks into a bar and says, I cannot see a thing. I'll open this one. <laughs> no, Why? Yeah, no one can quite parse the meaning of that joke. Something is lost in the translation over the centuries. 1983 BCE. Okay. Uh, who knows? Uh, the first joke in English. Here's the first joke in English, Bob, they could find okay. in a book of poetry from the 10th century. 10th century AD then. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We've gone to- The common era. Yeah. What hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole that is often poked before? What? What What hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole that it has often poked before? Can we answer that on this program? We can. It's a key, Bob. (laughs) Get your mind out of the gutter. A lot of early humor apparently relied on puns and presumed lewdness. Uh, That was one. 10th century. An ancient joke book from Greece in the 4th century. Asked by the court barber how he wanted his hair cut, the witty fellow replied, in silence. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't want his barber to talk. Yeah, more than a thousand years later, it's still a relatable sentiment. Of course it is. I'm going to wrap up with a Napoleon Hill quote. 
If you cannot do great things, do small things in a great way. Okay. <laughs> well, that's like this show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is our 199th oh show. Oh, my gosh. The next show will be our 200th. Oh, we got to have an office party. Oh, yes, the two of us, if <laughs> yes. nothing else. Oh, hats and horns and a little bubbly. That'll be fun. So we hope you come back for that when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. You're listening to The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.